Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. On this week's episode, the podcast crosses a major milestone with our first anonymous guest. We welcome to the show the CEO of Rook, who goes by the name Hazard. This is one of our more technical episodes as we get into the topic of MEV, or Maximal Extractable Value, a key concept in the world of Ethereum. Hazard helps me understand why MEV exists, what the Flashbots project does, and most interestingly, how the Rook Payment for Order Flow protocol can make traders money without destroying the Ethereum network. And for even more details on MEV and to check out the Chainalysis State of Web 3 report, head to the URLs in the show notes. Today, we have a special episode for you diving into the MEV Dark Forest and the mystery behind Ethereum front running. I'm joined by the CEO of Rook, a gentleman that goes by the name of Hazard. Hazard, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You have the distinct honor of being the first anonymous guest on Public Key. So we're breaking new ground today. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm flattered. Well, it's certainly exciting for me. It feels like uh, every episode we get a little bit further into the world of crypto and uh, the idea of an anonymous executive, I think, is a big step in that direction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something that quite adds up in the corporate world, right? <laughs> certainly not from my perspective. I'm I'm out there trying to gain Twitter followers every day. So so you're kind of going the the opposite direction. <laughs> but maybe we can start with just a little bit on your background, anything you're comfortable to share and how you became uh, the anonymous CEO of Rook is is probably a great story to to begin the podcast with. Sure, yeah. So I started uh, teaching myself to program. So I actually started as kind of a software engineer and got involved with some startup that I used to pay my way through school. I trained as a mathematician and I started using those software skills to do experimental applied mathematics as well as some research. Worked for a while in academia as a research mathematician, but ultimately decided to take a tour into big tech and led some teams building some really high scale data infrastructure and algorithms, which was uh, uh, very interesting. But I think when I started to see a lot of the activity that was happening in crypto, I began to get reinvolved. So I had actually first gotten involved in crypto by showing up at a hackerspace. And there were some people trying to kind of uh, solder together a bunch of motherboards in order to create some huge Bitcoin mining rig, some kind of abomination that really shouldn't have existed. <laughs> and uh, I remember looking at it and saying, that's interesting. So you're going to mine this thingy. And then, but somebody had brought a software defined radio kit so that you could tune, you know, your Linux machine to uh, get radio signals and broadcast radio signals. I was like, no, that's cool. So yeah. you know, I went over and, and worked and played with that instead. Really, when I was um, working as a mathematician, I remember bringing up Bitcoin white paper and saying, myself, oh, wow, this is not a toy. And really in that moment, just reading the white paper saying, oh, this is very significant because I was able to recognize from the white paper what I wasn't able to recognize just from people talking about it. Then it became very confusing to me because I was like, well, why isn't nobody talking about this? Like, why isn't anybody in the department are they, do they, are they aware of this? I haven't heard anybody speaking about this. And so, you know, I actually tried to pitch it as like a research program. I was like, you know, I think there's stuff we could do with distributed consensus. And they were like, uh, we're not doing that. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I got laughed a little bit out of the department. And so, but I was always interested in it. And I'd kept up with the research and had seen, you know, through the bear market, this was maybe 2017, 2018. I started seeing so many more things come out of it, you know, like the uh, AMMs and then, um, you know, flash loans and just so many new and 
exciting ideas, governance token and what Compound was doing and stuff. And as a mathematician, you, you get this insight or this intuition about problems that like sometimes you get a result and it's just it solves the one problem you wanted to solve. And then sometimes you get like these golden goose kind of results that like you get this result and then just like stuff keeps coming out of the box, you know, and it's just like you can just keep going back again and again. And the way that all this new stuff was coming out of this box, it made me feel like this is a significant thing. This is a significant technology. I guess that's when I kind of drank the DeFi Kool-Aid, right? I was like, all right, this is for real. And I saw up the Flash Boys 2.0 paper, the kind of the famous paper that defined MEV for the first time. Yep. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Because in the math department, you have friends who go to the dark side and do Department of Defense stuff or financial math, right? And so I was like, oh, this is really cool. This reminds me of some of the stuff that folks I know who do HFT or high frequency trading think about. And I was like, oh, this is so awesome. You know, this is really interesting. The way that it was intertwined with the properties of the system and it couldn't really be pulled away from those was just really fascinating. I was like, oh, it's like embedded in there. So I started looking into projects that were working on this. And at the time, Rook was a new project. And I actually joined their Discord. You know, I was just there. I was still working in big tech and I was just kind of hanging out and seeing what was going on and it seemed interesting. And myself and a few others started wanting to do some things to improve the blog posts, kind of like at Community Ambassadors or something like that, and kind of made a little proposal and kind of got them to bring us on board to do that and get some more access to some more information. And then at some point in this process, one of them learned that I was an engineer and they were like, oh, well, you should be working on the arbitrage bot. And I was like, all right, you know, let me see that sucker. Yeah, so I, I started working on that and kind of joined the core team. As I got more and more of a picture of where this was going and like what we were building and what it really was, I, I started doing more planning and developed the governance system for the DAO and started doing more long-term strategic planning and using more of my tool set from when I was leading teams or developing startups. And at some point, we decided kind of reorganize and rethink the way that we did things and kind of grow and adapt as an organization in order to capture our business objectives. I made like a reorganization plan and the core team and everybody wanted me to do the kind of the executive role alongside our CTO, Jay-Z. And so I put the matter to governance and that's what we did. I'm not a founder of the project. I an anonymous dude from the chat room. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an amazing uh, only in crypto kind of story where you can go from chat room participant to chief executive in about two and a half years. I love that story. The uh, experience you had in academia as well is very similar to a story from our co-founder, Jonathan Levin. He was doing economics graduate work in the United Kingdom and sort of stumbled into Bitcoin in very similar circumstances, I think, to what you did. A friend showed him the white paper and some content related to Bitcoin over a, a beer in a pub circa 2011, 2012. And he quickly fell down the rabbit hole and proposed writing his graduate thesis on how cryptocurrency was going to overturn the global financial ecosystem. And I think nearly got himself laughed out of Cambridge. I think he struggled to find an advisor. Eventually, he finally did publish some research, but it was uh, hard fought to even get people to, to take it seriously. For the audience, I think there's some fundamental concepts that we want to make sure everybody can wrap their mind around. And, and then I would love to circle back to what you're actually building at Rook. But before we jump into that, uh, you mentioned this term MEV, and I think compared it a little bit to things that we see in the high frequency trading equities markets. Can you talk a little bit about what MEV is and how it fits into the cryptocurrency kind of technology stack and trade execution process? I'm happy to do that. And I would be remiss if I, the first thing I didn't say wasn't to clarify the way that it's said. So typically you'll say MEV, 
Mev is it's one of these things where if you use Microsoft, then you call it SQL. And if you use Linux, you call it SQL. I need these corrections because this is an area where my technical depth is particularly thin, which is why I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so MEV has got a really complicated definition and a really complicated name. So it's just a black hole of, of complicated things. So I'm going to try to simplify it. MEV stands for maximal extractable value. It used to stand for minor extractable value, minor as in an Ethereum minor. I'm going to call it maximal because that's the new generic definition. So maximal extractable values. It's the value that can be extracted from somebody trying to settle a transaction by an agent who is actually responsible for doing that settlement for them. In a blockchain, so let's use Ethereum as an example, when you click a button to make a trade, you're not actually making that thing happen. You know, you're creating a transaction and then you're you're sending that transaction like a request into the network and then that transaction in order to actually happen needs to be picked up from that network from that pool of transactions waiting to be mined or, or used by an agent like a miner and then put into a block and the block has an order so there's a bunch of transactions in this block and they're in a particular order that the miner decides, and then that block uh, will be mined. So it'll have a hash attached to it and so on, and then that'll become part of the blockchain. At that point is when you can say that that thing that you wanted to do, that button that you clicked happened. And MEV emerges from the fact that there are things that you may want to do now, or at the very least before somebody else does it, right? So something like arbitrage, right? Where you see an imbalance between two markets and you know that you can balance those markets. And so you make a transaction to do that, but somebody else could be looking at those same markets and choose to do that at the same time. And both of you could send your request, your transaction out into this pool of transactions. And then you're both sort of waiting for somebody else on the other side of that pool to pick them up and put them in a block. And the thing about arbitrage is the first one to actually do it captures the arbitrage and then the arbitrage disappears. So if you're second place, you know, if you arrive to do the arbitrage after it's already been done, there's nothing for you to do. In this scenario, how do you make that person, the, the miner on the other side of this pool, choose yours rather than the other guys? The classical way to do this is to pay the miner gas to say the miner will rationally choose one of these that is uh, going to pay it more because the gas fee goes to that miner. And there can be sort of a convention that the miner will include transactions ordered by their gas fee. So if you pay more, you're going to come first. What happens when you do this is that for opportunities where the first, you know, sort of the, the first person to get there wins, you can't actually race in the real world because it's all going to go into this pool and then there's going to be kind of a second race or second ordering opportunity. So you have to kind of put the order into the transaction itself in the form of an incentive to the miner to order them in a particular way. So you're essentially, there's sort of an auction, if you want to think about it like that, that takes place. You know, the miner in a way is holding this auction and saying who would like their transaction to come first because you need to bid for it, right? You need to give me gas. And these folks who have this transaction, so say I'm going to capture $100 of arbitrage, say it's worth $100 to me, I'm going to get $0 if I come in second. So maybe I'm willing to pay $50 to come in first. I'll get $50, which is better than zero. But then maybe the other guy will say, oh, I'll pay $70 because $30 is better than zero. And in this way, what happens is all of the value in that arbitrage ends up going into this fee to be the first one to capture the arbitrage. And this process where the miner is essentially extracting, they're not physically like reaching and extracting it out of the transaction, but the people trying to settle the transaction are willingly and rationally moving the value from the transaction that they would receive from that transaction into this sort of payment that they must give the miner to ensure the correct order that will let them profit at all. This transfer is referred to 
was extraction. So the miner is extracting value from this arbitrage transaction. And the miner doesn't have to do this. Nobody's acting maliciously, but it's just the simple fact that ordering matters and it's rational to pay as much as, you know, 99 out of $100. Because uh, if you're going to make $1, because $1 is more than $0 that you would make if you weren't willing to pay at all for this right to be the first person to settle this. So it's similar to something that you'd see in HFT, but there it's really about like who gets there first. It's a race between the participants. Whereas here, it's like you all get fired out of a gun and then you just land in this molasses and you're all stuck in this pool of transactions. You, you can't go any faster than, than the pool lets you. Then people take your transactions out of the pool and all of the uh, ordering power really lies with the agents that are building the blocks, so the miners. So it's up to them to decide who comes out of this pool and gets into a block and in what order. And so really this interaction that takes place is it's a financial one. Like you have to pay for the right to be at a certain spot in the block. Maybe it's before another guy, or maybe you just want to be at the top of the block, like you want to be the first person, because that'll ensure that whatever happened in that block, you'll get first dibs on that. So there's this concept now, this sort of higher level concept of really what gas is, is it's you're paying for block space, right? Like you, you're paying for a certain piece of real estate in the block, which is valuable based on various things you can make happen. Like if I know I'm first in the block, I get first pick of whatever arbitrage is going to be available then, right? It's this interesting sort of situation that happens. It's fascinating. I have a couple questions just to make sure that we're we're following the technical detail here. In your description, I think you simplified it down to the idea that there's kind of a single miner who's ordering transactions. But in reality, there's lots of large mining pools and then and then many, many smaller mining pools. How does that kind of auction for block space concept function when you've got multiple people who are potentially selecting different block order? Like, how does that play into all this? Am I overcomplicating it maybe? Too? No, I mean, it, it is complicated and it just, it gets more complicated because there's also more than one person trying to settle this transaction, right? Like there may be a rush of a bunch of different people and there may be a bunch of different miners, there may be mining pools, and then there's different ways to submit it. You don't don't have to submit your transaction into that public mempool and broadcast it. You can submit it directly to a mining pool. Nowadays, we have flashbots. You can submit it to flashbots. So there's many different routes and, and ways to do this. So my description was kind of the classical one of a, it's called a priority gas auction that takes place in a public mempool between two settlement agents and a, and a miner. It's quite complex and it changes all the time. Today's state of the art is not what it looked like a year ago, and it's not what that looked like a year before that. So and I'm sure it'll look different a year from now. And I think maybe this will lead us back to a little bit of what you're working on at Rook. But the point you just made about flashbots is you don't have to submit into the public mempool. So one, if people aren't familiar, the mempool is is that uh, molasses area you described a moment ago. It's a world readable environment of all the transactions that are up for inclusion in future blocks. For technically sophisticated people, it gives you a huge opportunity, I think, for this arbitrage problem to continue to play out, arbitraging the transactions coming in or front running potentially, because you can see everyone else's submitted transactions, right? But then it kind of begs the question, why does any sophisticated trader not operate their own miners and just bypass this entire concept, right? 
this was the key worry that was raised in the paper, Flash Voice 2.0. Okay. And it was identified first there, which is in any blockchain system, your main concern is to ensure this uh, decoupling. You know, you want to have a, a network of miners or validators or block builders. You want it to be decentralized. And the reason that we have this separation between what you say you want to do and then it actually happening into the block separated by this mempool is because it enforces this censorship resistance. It means that if little old me sends a transaction, it can't be stopped because worst case, somebody out there, some miner isn't, you know, you'd have to get all the miners to censor my transactions and say no to it. But somebody could always just connect to the mempool and say, oh, well, nobody else wants to work with these transactions. Well, I'll, I'll do it, you know, and I'll get the gas for it. So what the concern was, though, is what about if a mining pool took the other side of these trades, right? So what if the mining pool's bots were the ones submitting the transactions? to right. the miner. None of this value is actually getting extracted. They're just capturing it and using their power to order the block to ensure that their transactions are always happening. And what they could do is they could watch the mempool. They don't actually even have to do the work of identifying the arbitrage. They can just wait for somebody else to do it, see it in the mempool, copy it, and submit it to themselves or just stick it in the block that they're building at that time. And this was deemed dangerous, not because of, you know, in the real world, you'd be like, well, that seems illegal. But here, the, the main overriding concern was what would happen is that mining pool would make profit, right? They would essentially be capturing the arbitrage profit from the blockchain. And with that profit, they could buy more mining units and they could then capture more hash power, which would allow them to probably capture more, order more blocks and capture more arbitrage and buy more mining units. And it would be this runaway centralization effect that would ultimately start to aggregate most of the mining power to this enterprising group of miners, right? Which would then destabilize the security guarantees of the network. So this was the overriding philosophical issue that motivated something like flashbots to be formed to say this can't be allowed to happen. MEV is a centralizing force unless we ensure that miners can't interact in this way with that transaction flow coming in because that would lead to this uh, scenario. And maybe just a quick explanation of what flashbots is doing and how they prevent that centralizing process from coming to be. The best way to think about flashbots is that they, they ensure that no one miner or mining pool is going to receive MEV that's being, uh, that's being captured. So they democratize it in the sense that they kind of spread it around. I won't get into technical details, but they ensure that this kind of situation can't happen. So it's not deterministic. And it's been quite successful at that because we've seen MEV, the total amount of MEV extracted rise over the last year of increased activity and everything, but it hasn't concentrated in any particular mining pool or any particular miner. And that's largely due to the development of Flashbot. And that's the major product that is there is this sort of security guarantee. So a res restoration of the security guarantee that you know, this kind of runaway thing won't be able to happen. And they provide numerous incentives and things to make sure that everything is incentive compatible. And it's a, quite a nice piece of technology. Awesome. We'll make sure to include links to the, the white paper you mentioned and some other details there in the show notes for anybody that wants to go really deep on that particular topic. I guess I'm struck by, and, and maybe the answer to this question is, well, that's why we created Rook. But on the less sophisticated end of an Ethereum user, should I be kind of generally concerned about this sort of trade manipulation happening and bots running around in the mempool? And is this generally driving up gas fees for you know the non-institutional or sophisticated trader who's just attempting to maybe send some funds via the Ethereum network or do a simple uh, asset swap you know, on a DeFi platform? Like, How should the average amongst us be thinking about this? 
it's tough because it's a really hard problem to ask like an average end user to really care about, but they'll feel it in various ways. You, you mentioned one of the ways. They'll feel it in generally increased gas. It used to be much worse than it is today. Again, Flashpots and some other systems have made it so that these gas auctions are not generally taking place in the open as much, on Ethereum at least. That impact is a little bit less than it used to be, although there's many exceptions. But that's one way they could feel it. It's just the system is just more expensive to use and it's just not clear to them why. Another way that they can feel it is is from predatory behavior on the part of some of these bots. And this is, again, the fact that the user's actions on the blockchain are not deterministic until the block is finalized. And so if they see a juicy trade and they want to buy at that price or something, their request to do that is going to be floating around for a while and plenty of time for many sophisticated bots to decide if they would rather have that trade or they'd rather front run it or sandwich attack it or do any number of things that would end up resulting in that user losing, not losing funds, but not having the trade, you know, they could have increased slippage on the trade, end up with less tokens than they thought that they were hopefully going to be able to buy than the quote said they would be able to buy. Or in the worst case, their, you know, their transaction may reverse. If it's particularly good and somebody else wants to take that trade, there's many ways that they could do that and basically bump the user off and their transaction would end up failing and they could end up paying gas fees for that failed transaction even in some cases. That's also certainly an area where they feel it. But there's another, some would argue, more important area, which is this systemic fact that kind of asking where arbitrage opportunities really come from, right? It's tempting to think that it's just random noise, but much of it is actually due to mispricing and the fact that um, prices on a blockchain are going to evolve block by block. Whereas on a centralized exchange or in other types of systems, it can evolve with a much more granular set of curves. And so often, if you're a user providing liquidity, let's say, or doing anything in a contract that requires the services of an outside agent, like your collateral is being used to collateralize a loan or something like that. But liquidity provision is the kind of simpler example. If you're, you know, you've provided some liquidity on Uniswap or something. You're basically market making, right? Mm -hmm. Except you're offering to the market prices that are very often stale because of the fact that the you know your pricing is going to update block by block. But off chain on like a Binance or something, it's going to evolve not block by block. It's going to evolve you know like millisecond by millisecond. And so if there's high volatility, you're basically offering stale quotes that can get picked off by bots. And it's like oh, it's arbitrage. That makes it sound like it's a force of nature, but really it's this value that gets extracted. You can if you actually look at the numbers, it, there's this outflow of value from users who are trading or providing liquidity or whatever, just doing productive activities on the blockchain or from protocols trying to do the same thing. Maybe the protocol is trying to rebalance a position or something that creates some MEV or something. But all this value gets extracted down to today miners or, you know, in the future block producers and other kinds of systems. But there's a sort of leak, if you want to think about it like that. There's value that's flowing out of the system away from the market participants and into today the hands of miners generally. And this is sort of a bigger systemic issue. The paper headlines are that, you know, this user got sandwiched and front run and, you know, that's what everybody worries about. But the bigger issue in terms of the ecosystem is like, you know, we've built a system that basically uh, has a leak in it and we need to fix that. Otherwise, it's not going to be super attractive for users, right, over the long term. That's really one of the things I've been wrestling with as I've explored this topic is it seems like the miners or block producers, they need to be compensated to at least some degree. Otherwise, they're not going to run the software that, that operates the network. But your point here about this leak is it seems like it's it's too much, although that feels like an arbitrary designation by me. 
So I've been trying to even process whether this is good or bad. And should the, you know, the core developers on Ethereum be trying to change the architecture in such a way to eliminate this? Or should we all, you know, start using something like Flashbot? This is an interesting topic because a lot of people think that we have an answer today, or they think that maybe Flashbots is the answer, or that, you know, we can fix this at the protocol level with Ethereum or something. And, and Flashbots has never pretended to be an answer to this in the sense of stopping the leak. What they do is they make sure that the leak doesn't go into any one mining pool. They make sure that it doesn't concentrate because that would destabilize the security, you know, the decentralization of the network would be at risk then. But they don't stop the leak. In fact, we you could argue that they have to pay a little bit more to induce miners to give up the potential for decentralizing um, flywheel that they could be pursuing because it's, it's easier and more rational for them to do this. But the work to stop the leak is really hard to do at the layer where you've already kind of submitted the transactions. There are attempts being made to work with it. Some chains see it as a way to monetize. They see it as a way to kind of, you could use this as like a tax almost, and that could pay for, you know, ongoing development. There's been various degrees of controversy around this, but this is probably the most intense area of active research right now. So there are a lot of really smart people thinking about this and looking at this. Our perspective at Rook is a little bit different. We and the research group that we've worked with over the years has had the sort of the belief for a while that most of the MEV that we see being extracted actually belongs to a user somewhere. One way or another, it comes from market participants, right? And an ideal system would ensure that this inefficiency would ensure that that's minimized. And the question becomes, how do we do this? And where do we do? This? And what we know about MEV is that it starts at what we might call the application layer, which is where users and, and smart contracts and stuff are, are doing their thing. And then it is brought down by searchers or automated agents into this area where miners and block creators are doing their thing, which we call the consensus layer. They're building the consensus for the blockchain. And we think that the work to actually eliminate this inefficiency needs to happen at the application layer. It needs to start with the tools and the products that users are able to use. And it needs to be a part of how builders are creating these protocols in the first place. So there's been a buzzword going around about MEV-aware protocol design. And a lot of what we do is building products that enable that to happen and align incentives so that the users and these protocols that generate the MEV, you know, they create the opportunities which then result in extraction, are actually able to extract that MEV on themselves. They won't be doing it themselves, though it'll be facilitated for them, but that they're able to essentially retain that value that would have been lost today. And there's many ways to go about this, but um, we feel that you're right, you know, miners and block producers, they, they need to be paid. That's a very important part. The security budget of any blockchain is quite important. But that today, the economic incentives are just a little misaligned because we're spending billions of dollars coming from users to secure the network. And that seems like it's far too high. And really, it doesn't seem like the way that you would build a productive economic system anyway. So we're focused on that application layer and uh, making sure that this makes its way back to those users or just not leave their hands in the first place. For a sense of scale, I think the stat I read was about 650 million last year accrued to MEV. Which... The interesting thing about that stat is it's, uh, that's sort of a lower bound, and that's only for that's only for Ethereum. So there's a lot of MEV that we don't really count in the in that because you know the data analysis it's hard to say what's MEV and what's not. And there's such a thing as like long tail MEV where there's you know kind of these rare opportunities, but they can often yield outsized rewards and outsized amount of MEV. I mean we're talking about you know more than half a billion dollars as a lower bound. And it's growing all the time. As the blockchains grow, the opportunity to do this grows. As the number of protocols grows, as liquidity grows, and all of this uh, gets bigger and bigger. 
in the few minutes we have remaining, talk a bit about what you're building at Rook, kind of who uses that. It appears as a as an individual user I can connect to and use Rook, but I, you also mentioned a moment ago that the protocol developers are also a potential user of what you're building. So maybe un, unpack that for a bit. There's a good analogy here. So we have a situation where you have these bots that are right now they're engaged with miners or block producers in some financial interaction. You know, users just kind of spit out these transactions or these opportunities, and then the bots pick up on them and then they go and haggle with miners about who's going to settle it. What if there was a way for these users, instead of just kind of blithely broadcasting these transactions or allowing these opportunities to happen, to interact with those bots instead, to form a financial relationship there? Because what would that look like? That would look like I have something I want to be done, a transaction, and I have bots that may be able to make some money from that. If they were the only one that was going to be able to do that. That's important because if more than one of them could do it, they could, you know, bid this up to kind of compete to be the first one to land it with a miner. But say I'm going to offer the exclusive execution right, then they can have their bidding war there for that exclusive right. Instead of being the wild and doing it and sending all the money to the miner, they can pay me for the exclusive execution right. And then whoever wins the auction will be able to go ahead and do that. And all the other bots will have to abide by that. Why? Because if they don't, they'll lose the right to bid in future auctions for the exclusive right to do anything. They'll be cast out into the wild. Because many people don't understand this, but these bots, their margins are extremely thin. For every $100 of arbitrage or you know, every dollar of arbitrage, they're making about five cents. So about 95 cents are going to go to the miner. So you don't have to offer them much to make it very attractive for them to actually prefer this to the wild. You don't have to take much away from the user. In this scenario now, it looks like something more like payment for order flow, where these bots are willing to pay for the exclusive right to execute your orders. And they can do that on an order by order basis. They can do it on some kind of other basis, but you can design an auction that will allow an independent you know, set of decentralized bots to identify your transaction and associated transactions and know how much money they could make. Like, let's say you're going to send a big trade into a certain pool and make a big footprint. And, oh, they could back run that and make $100 of arbitrage. Well, that means that the exclusive right to settle your transaction, which creates the arbitrage, is worth about $100 to them. So they can end up bidding for that. Let's say they bid $90. So they're going to make $10. That's pretty good. You make $90, right? You do your trade that you're going to do anyway. Then you also get an additional kind of price improvement if you want to think about it like this, because the MEV has been sent back to you, this MEV that you created. And so this inefficiency in the market is kind of being closed. This gap is being closed now to where if you think about it now, you're paying a fee, a $10 in this example fee to this spot to execute your order perfectly. That's a much more sound arrangement. That's much better for you as the user. It's much more rational for you to want to do that. And it aligns the incentives in the appropriate way where you know the miners aren't dictating the order because the fact that MEV exists is really a consequence of the fact that you can't guarantee exclusivity of execution, right? Two or more people can compete and that's what causes that auction to emerge. By doing this, we can offer to users and protocols and applications and wallets and lots of other things, kind of this new primitive that allows them to send their transaction or their order flow through this system, which will enable it to be bid on if it has value, if their transactions or their orders have value, they'll be bid on by these bots who are decentralized and independent. 
and the user or protocol or however they want to do it, the return is programmable, will receive that value back to them. And as well as having the execution happen, right, in the in the best way. These bots are extremely sophisticated. I'll give you an example. So there was a somebody wanted to trade about $100,000 of stablecoins, one stablecoin to another stablecoin. And typically when you do this, you have to give up something. There's some slippage, right? You're not going to get $100,000 of the other stablecoin. Here, they got perfect execution. So 100K to 100K. And they actually made about 40 bucks that came from somewhere. And you can look and try to pick apart the transaction to see how the route emerged and happened. But there was a bot that was able to say, I'll take that and I'll pay you this much to do it. And you know, the bot is keeping a little bit of money too, but the protocol makes sure through the auction design that they're not keeping too much. It's as if you had like payment for order flow, like what Citadel would do for Robinhood, right? Except it's personalized. It's very DeFi, right? Like you can use it. And instead of having to strike some kind of a annual deal or some kind of thing, it just finds, you know, through this auction process, the actual value of your transaction based on, you know, the fair value that's been determined through this auction that people are willing to pay. And it pays you 80% or more of that value. That's a way better deal than you would get from Citadel or anything else like that. And you can do this if you're a protocol or if you're a user, you can build on top of this. And if you're a protocol, it lets you monetize, right? And it doesn't centralize the network in any way because most of the value is remaining at the edges. It's going back to you. So there is nowhere for it to pool up or centralize. The bots that are keeping it, they're keeping a tiny amount and it's a decentralized network of them. It's not going to accrue to any one in particular. So it's a, it's a very different type of system. It's quite complex. It took us a while to fully build it all out, but it's very nice. And I think that this, we're not the, today we're the only ones that can do this, but I think it's important to be thinking in this direction because you can't build a system as amazing as Ethereum and expect users to just kind of go along with the fact that there's a bunch of money being taken out of their pockets. That's not good user experience, right? Nobody's going to want to do that. Systems like this are really necessary because then it lets you build with without having to worry about all of this stuff. And it lets you trade if you're a user without having to worry about all this stuff. And you know, you might even get money out of it. The money, the value that you should have realized is going to come out to you. It's very interesting. And we think it's going to be a very important primitive as we, you know, build the next iteration of uh, these blockchains and protocols. It sounds amazing. I mean, it solves one of the bigger problems that I've been wondering about since I started spending time in the space a year and a half ago. And it's live, generally available today. Users can, can access it. Protocols can start building on it. We've already started building with some protocols and we have a trading app that we built on top of it. So you can go to app.rook.fi and make trades. We've got some really interesting trades too that um, if you follow our Twitter account, which is just at Rook, there's a bunch of really cool uh, kind of case studies because you can see these huge like $100 million trades going through it. And, you know, they're picking up all their MEV is going to them. It's like 60 or $100,000 worth of MEV that just accrues right to them. And the execution is amazing too because these bots are just so sophisticated. So yeah, it's a really amazing system. We're really excited to start getting it into more people's hands because ultimately that's the goal. We want it to be kind of operating as a public good, right? This is very DeFi, but if you think about payment for order flow in traditional finance, well, it's not a public good, but if you think about payment for order flow and what it really is, like it could be a public good. Public good is just something that's non-rivalrous, which means that I can use it and you can use it at the same time. We know with payment for order flow that if the more orders, the better. So it's actually anti-rivalrous is the, the term for it. So it's got a network effect. The more people that use it, the better. And it's non-exclusionary, which is the other criteria for a public good, which just means that you don't have to pay to use it, right? The system pays you. It's free, right? I want you to use it because I can derive value from that and give you back some. Those are the two criteria for public good. So payment for order flow should be a public good. It's just not in traditional finance because why the hell would I make a public good? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but here it makes sense. We have the tools to actually let people use it to let 
let everybody use it permissionless way, plug into it and use it. And it's important that we do that because if an enterprising securities firm were to take a look one day and say, nice, a billion dollars, nice, we should go get that. Right now, today, nothing's stopping them. Yeah. The only thing from stopping them from doing that is the fact that they'd have to go door to door. They'd have to go to protocol by protocol and say, hey, I'll make an arrangement with you. Hey, I'll make an arrangement with you. You know, they have huge sales teams that can handle that, right? But what is the magic of this public goods approach is that it will allow us to maximize the value for the user. And what those big funds and firms, if they want, come in to come in, what they can't do, what they won't do is they won't give you 80, 90% of the value. They're not going to do that. That's the great thing. If you do it this way, you can inoculate the blockchain against that kind of stuff. And I think that would be fascinating because if all of that value is able to remain with the market participants, I bet we can make more efficient markets than you could in traditional finance. Then it's just a problem of liquidity. It's a problem of execution quality, but surplus value, it's not going to be happening anymore. It's not going to be a leak anymore. So that's really exciting to me. And that's what a lot of what motivates us at Rook is to really take this to the limit and see what happens if you build financial infrastructure with this kind of a system embedded in it. I think that would be really fascinating. I feel exactly the same way. I think an absolutely necessary development for the network. I'm going to be following along on Twitter as you post those case studies. I love I love those stories. Hazard, this has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Learned a ton. I think our listeners probably have as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I, I always love talking about MEBs. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Speaking of reviews, here's a funny one from one of our listeners, Amy. I'm on a two-hour flight and forgot to download music, and the only thing I have on me is the Chainalysis podcasts. Just made it through the first episode, and I already feel smarter. Well, Amy, I'm glad we could help with that. Thanks for listening and the hilarious review. Want to be featured in an upcoming episode? Head to your favorite podcast platform right now and leave us a review.